Uh, well, I was uh, scrolling through news headlines uh, this last week and got to one uh, news headline about an actor who is uh, just really receiving unheard of amounts uh, for his movies. Uh, he, he is paid an obscene amount uh, for each one. And um, with a string of box office hits, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is the greatest or highest paid actor in Hollywood right now. Uh, who, who thought? So uh, The Rock is the highest paid actor in Hollywood right now, getting over $20 million dollars her film, and it seems like he's always in a film, whether it is the Fast and Furious franchise that has like 15,000 episodes or f- sequences here, or um, I think there's seven or eight or nine, they just keep doing Fast and Furious, and he keeps getting millions of dollars for these, or, or whether it's these cheesy uh, kid shows where he's like the tooth fairy or something like that, or what, all of these different shows, all these different movies that he's in, but he's, he's, he's getting $20 million. The next movie that he's going to be in um, is going to give him, it's called Red Notice, and he's, his contract is for $22 million plus a percentage of all of the sales of that movie. So this is millions of dollars in addition to $22 million. So, so imagine with me for a moment uh, a $22 million payday. Like what would that look like if the next paycheck were $22 million? What would life look like? What would be different? Uh, what would you change? What would you pay off? What would you uh, go and do? What places would you go and see? Uh, the Rock does not have to worry about these things because he is at the top of his class. And so we think about the lifestyles of the rich and famous. We've, we've been in award season, so if you've watched the Oscars and things like that, so, so you, you see these red carpet events and you see the way they dress and the lifestyles that they have, the places that we would go and see, the vacations that we would go on, the work we would no longer do. And of course, for every story of someone who makes it big, there is the story of the bust on the other side, especially celebrities who who make it big and spend even more than their big salaries and go bankrupt. Uh, Ones like Mike Tyson, who who filed bankruptcy. He had debts of $23 million when he filed bankruptcy. He had made over $400 million in his career. How much do you have to spend to make $400 million and then go into debt $23 million beyond that? Or MC Hammer. MC Hammer had a great successful career for a time. Not anymore. His estimated net worth was $33 million, so you really pocket change for someone like The Rock. But a, a, a net worth of $33 million and ended up with debt of $13 million that he had to file bankruptcy for. And so we've got the lifestyles of the rich and famous in both directions, the ones who make it big and then spend and spend and overspend that paycheck to the point of bankruptcy. Uh, money can be a tricky thing. We think if we just had a little bit more in our paycheck, then that would get us over the hump that we need. And as these celebrities show us, there's always a bigger number to get over that next hump. There's always more to accumulate, always more to gain, always more to make. And so money is a challenging topic for us. We don't like to talk about it. 
But you know who likes to talk about money? Is Jesus. Because Jesus talks more about money than any other topic other than the kingdom of God. Money is a topic that, that comes up frequently in the teachings of Jesus and is, is set as an example for us on into the early church. Money is a big deal. How we use it, how we don't use it, how much we keep, how much we don't keep, money becomes this topic that is really important. And so we're in this series called Stories by Jesus where we're looking at these parables of Jesus, just a few of them in Luke, looking at the stories that Jesus tells to help teach us what the kingdom of God is like. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of her, his? Because there's certain characteristics and certain lifestyles and certain choices that are made when we, be, we decide to become a disciple. And so today we are in chapter 12 looking at a story about money, a story about wealth. And so if you would turn to Luke chapter 12 as we spend some time in here. The scene here, like many scenes that, that Jesus starts off with, starts with the question. There's somebody in the crowd that throws something out and says, hey Jesus, what do you think about this? And Jesus responds to that question. He responds with teaching. He responds with, responds with parables. And so here we have in chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Uh, we know that if this is recorded here, this, this statement from the crowd, this person speaking up and saying, Hey, teacher, we know that this is going to be a teaching moment. And it's going to be the opposite of what the person asking thought it was going to be. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, if you were here last week, we heard the story about the, the prodigal son who goes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. And so now we have this similar situation where, where a brother says, Give me my portion of the inheritance. Now, we don't know if the father is already dead. We don't know if he's coming and wanting this early on like the prodigal son. But, but the brother is coming and saying, Give me my peace. Give me what I think should be mine. Now, we don't know if he's wanting more of the inheritance, if he, gotten, if he got written out of the will. We don't know all of the, the different circumstances that surround his request here. But here the brother is, is wanting a piece of the inheritance. He's saying, divide it up, give me more than what I currently have. And so this brother sees Jesus as somebody who can settle this dispute. He sees this, this trustworthy figure of Jesus. He says, okay, this teacher, he can give a fair assessment of this in my favor. Teacher, please deal with this family feud that's going on. The siblings can't get along about who's going to get the family farm. The siblings can't get along about who gets that antique family heirloom. We're fighting over possessions, we're fighting over property, we're fighting over bank accounts. We can't decide who gets what. So teacher, please step into the middle of this and tell the brother to give me more. Give me more of my inheritance. 
Now, when we think about inheritance, most of us are just thinking about dollar amounts in a bank account. So, so the division of that is a fairly mathematical thing, right? If you get 50% or if you get 80% or 0% or whatever, it's pretty easy to calculate what that inheritance is based on just money in a bank account. But think more about a family farm, a family farm that's been in the family for generation after generation, and now the patriarch or the matriarch passes away, and this family farm is left to divide among multiple children. So one option would be to sell the farm, and now you have money that can be divided by percentage. But then the farm is gone. That estate no longer is a part of the family. Another option would be to to keep the family farm intact, and if there are other assets, maybe some siblings can take those other assets, and one sibling can keep the farm and and carry on the family legacy in that farm. Or you can build another house. And the family stays on that farm, stays together, and continues to run the farm. And so the farm continues to go, even though different kids have inherited different percentages of it, the asset still remains intact. This is more in line with what the experience would have been like in Jesus' day, where, where the assets are, something that are not something that can be liquidated and split apart but something that's kept in the family, that the family remains together as a unified whole. While there wouldn't be anything in the law that says uh, you, ha- you can't separate out the, the assets, that you can't have an inheritance that's divided up, that would be allowable. That's not something that is just unheard of or something that would be offensive. The desired outcome is still to keep the unity of the family unit together. That there is, there's a unity together of, of, of life living together. That they're keeping it going. They're keeping it in the family. It stays intact. This would be the preferred path. And so when the young son of the, the story of the prodigal son comes and says, give me my inheritance, or, or when the, the, the brother of this particular story comes and says, give me my inheritance, these people are acting as dividers. Divide up the estate. What should be intact, what should be for the family to enjoy together, I want it divided so I can have my peace. And I can go and do my own thing. And so we see here, just in this request, a heart of division, wanting to break things apart, as opposed to keeping the family together. So let's continue in verse 14. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? Leave me out of it. This is not my thing. Who appointed me judge over this? Why are you drawing me into this family squabble? But then he gives a warning. He says in verse 15, Then he said to them, Watch out. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So Jesus responds, I'm not going to get in the middle of it, but I'm going to get in the middle of it. Let me tell you what you're doing. In your request for your inheritance, you are letting your greed show through. Your heart is showing through in your request for this inheritance 
be on guard, watch out. And so we have this first teaching moment for Jesus. Watch out for a greedy heart. Watch out for a greedy heart. In this request for more, we see a greedy heart. It's, his, it's this person's desire to divide for his own benefit, for his own gain. And in that, he reveals this greed. And there's this strong warning here. Jesus says, watch out. Pay attention. Make sure that you are on guard. Warning, warning. This is a big deal. Watch out for a greedy heart. That desire for more will eat away. And so not only does Jesus talk a lot about money, but apparently this was a really big deal in the early church, at least in the church or in the the culture around the church, because we have passage after passage, even beyond the words of Jesus, talking about greed. In Romans chapter 1, verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. That's quite company for the sin of greed to be keeping. The greed is listed with murder. It's a big deal. In Mark chapter 7, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Get this list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Greed is a part of this list of things that defile a person. It's not just a bad thing. It defiles a person. In Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And this is what is listed as earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Jesus makes a big deal out of greed because greed is a big deal. That desire for more, it's a big part of who we are as followers of Jesus. What we do with our money counts. What we do with our possessions counts. What we do with the resources that have been given to us counts. And so greed is not to be taken lightly. This is something that is, is considered idolatry and so jesus continues this teaching moment saying just in your question i'm able to see the greed of your heart but let me tell you a story to get you even more in on what the kingdom of god is like and he tells this parable in verse 16 the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest he thought to himself what shall i do I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, 
This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So we have here this man. And he has an incredible crop, this great surplus. Now, he's done nothing wrong to that point. He didn't gain his wealth dishonestly. He didn't gain it in some malicious way. He's not taking advantage of others. He's, he's gained his wealth because of the blessing of God. And so in this surplus, he starts to have this inner monologue. And in this inner monologue is where we start to hear his heart come out. Because the first thing he says is, I have no place to store my grain. Now, if this were actually true, he would have nothing to tear down. And he says, I have no place for my grain. What he really means is, I don't have a place big enough. This is not adequate to what I really want. I need something bigger, but he says, I have no place to put it. And so in having no place to put it, he goes on and builds, he tears down what, what, something that was good and functional and adequate. He tears this down and he builds a bigger barn because he has this great surplus of grain that he now has need to store. And so he tears down the barn and builds a bigger, better barn. And then in this inner dialogue, we see who the main character of the parable is. It is me. I will do this. I will do that. Look at what is good for me. Everything is me-centric. He says, I have had a great surplus. I need a bigger barn. I'm going to tear it down. I'm going to fill it up. And then, in his final act of, of selfishness and self-centeredness, says, now I can retire and play golf for the rest of my life. Because I have everything I need stored up here, and so here is retirement. Eat and drink and be merry. A completely self-indulgent life. And then God comes and says, not all that softly, you fool. You've stored all this up. You thought you were amassing this wealth to enjoy throughout retirement. And in fact, you're going to die an early death and it's all a waste. You fool. There's an old joke in antiquity that says the height of greed is when a man makes out his will and puts down his own name as that of inheritor. Here I write my will. And of course, the beneficiary of all of this is me. Ah, it doesn't quite work that way. But here he is. He's amassed everything, brought everything together, and has built bigger barns to store all of this for himself. And the assessment is, you fool. And so in this story, we see the self-centeredness 
of this man, the desire to amass more and to collect more and build bigger and build better. And Jesus is pointing here that everything is centered on self when actually it should be focused on others. That the economy of the kingdom of God is much different. That the things that are mine in the kingdom of God are not really mine. That there's a looking out for the need of others. And so what the man should have done was looked at this excess, looked at at what was far more than he could ever use, far more than what was ever beneficial to him, and looked at who his neighbor was. And looked at the needs of others. It's not about me. It's not about what I have. It's about the kingdom of God and what's needed in the kingdom. And so Jesus' second teaching point here is that, that our resources are for others. He blessed this man with with this great crop, and there was an opportunity to do something with that, an opportunity to to demonstrate what his heart was really about. Was his heart really about love of God, love for others? Or was his heart about love for self? Love of God and the kingdom of God and care and concern for others. Or was it about himself? He demonstrates in in this inner monologue his own sinfulness, his own desire to satisfy what is his own and not at all have an eye for the need of others. He looked at his production, he looked at his storage facilities, he looked at his personal use and needs and said, this is mine. I'm going to hold on to it so that I can relax and eat and drink and be merry. So that I can be comfortable. It is this you only live once mentality. Where I'm going to take what I have and live life to the fullest in some self-indulgent way. He's isolated himself from from the community. He's isolated himself from the needs of others. He doesn't even see others. He only sees himself. But when we are motivated by the kingdom of God, when that is what is overflowing out of our hearts, when that is the core of who we are, then our view of possessions, our view of wealth, our view of the blessings that God gives us is totally different. Our relationship with money is different as discipleship as disciples of Jesus. And so our use of possessions and our use of wealth should be guided by the by the values of the kingdom instead of a self-indulgent, self-centered culture. But behind greed is this fear. This fear that there will not be enough. It's this scarcity mentality that causes us to to amass more and more. We want to hold on to it because we're afraid of losing it. We hoard it beyond what is necessary. And and it shows in us our, our dependence on ourselves instead of our dependence on God. 
It shows in us an unwillingness to say that God is in control. It's, in, it's showing in us an unwillingness to show that there are, are more factors at play than who I am and what I desire and what I want. And so when we fear, we hold on to things. And it's this fear and anxiety that Jesus addresses next. Verse 22. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. What you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. They didn't go build a bigger barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you, how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life since you cannot do this very little thing? Why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the wild flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you? You of little faith. And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things. And your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. We are given the kingdom as an inheritance. And so why do you worry? Why do you have anxiety over what it is that you have or don't have? Why is it that you worry and are consumed with the world around you? What you eat or drink or what you wear? Because God has given you the kingdom And so what do you do with that inheritance? Our anxiety that we have around possessions, the anxiety that we have around our wealth or lack thereof is all about a lack of trust in God and not seeing that the true inheritance comes from God. And so Jesus says, trust in God's provision Trust that he will provide what is needed. You've got everything that you need. And so then he gives a final message in verse 33. That if you really are going to release the anxiety that you have, the worry that you have about wealth and possessions, then verse 33. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out. A treasure in heaven that will never fail. Where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so this being consumed with more. Amassing this great wealth rooted in an anxiety and worry and a self-centeredness, a dependence on self 
instead of a dependence of, on God. He says, get rid of it. Don't worry about it. Take care of those that are around you. Share in this. Now, this is a difficult concept in our economy and in our political structure and in our country. This is not capitalism. But when the community of God comes together and sees a need and works to meet that need, that is where you see the kingdom of God breaking through. He says it's not about amassing great wealth. It's not about having a great retirement account. It's not about what you collect for yourself. It's about how, do, how does God channel through you and work through you for the sake of others, for the kingdom of God. As we spend more time in Luke and Acts throughout the rest of the year, we're going to see this theme continue on. This idea of what is, what is wealth and where do possessions fit in the kingdom of God. But the early church gave us some pretty incredible examples that we'll look at later in the year. As we look at in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everything was in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone that had needs. There was this care and concern for others. Not about storing up and building bigger barns. In Acts chapter 4, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there, was, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had needs. And so there is this radical view of possessions and wealth that exists in the early church. And this is just beginning to scratch the surface of these conversations. What does this look like in our own lives? Who is the actual owner of what you call possessions? Because when we take on the label of disciple of Jesus, something changes with our bank account. Something changes with our retirement account. Something changes to, to our day-to-day -day way of living because it is now no longer self-focused. It is now kingdom-focused. And if our heart is in the kingdom of God, that is where our treasure is going to be. Let's be standing together. As we think about being a part of the kingdom of God, Jesus is telling us to invest in the kingdom. Invest in the kingdom. And so I don't want to spend time connecting the dots for you on this because each of you are in very different places with your finances. 
But the real question is, God, what do you want to do through me? In what I have and what you've given me, God, what do you want to do through me? Because God has blessed each of us with, with a unique set of things. Talent and time and treasure. We have these things that have been given to us. And what is God calling you into? This isn't a guilt message about giving. This is a generous congregation. This is, this is a congregation that, that out of our offerings, we pull together a help chest to be able to, to provide rental assistance and to pay bills and to be able to, to help support families that find themselves in need. This is, this is a congregation who, who every Wednesday night provides a meal at the cost of $7,000 a year to provide dinner on Wednesday nights. This is a congregation that gives. And that's just what the, the church organization does, what individuals are doing in secret and in the privacy of their own accounts and the privacy of their own ministries. If we were to total that up, it would be incredible. And so this is a challenge for us to, to reflect on what do we have? And is our focus in on ourselves or is the focus on the kingdom that God calls us to as we continue to grow in that process?